Technical difficulties. That's okay. You've already seen the trailer like a hundred times. Uh, we're doing a series on uh, raising life in a culture of death. Uh, and so we've been using this phrase, raise life, since Easter. We're in the, for those of you who are familiar with the church calendar, we, uh, we are in a season called Eastertide, which sounds made up. Um, uh, but it's, it's a very real thing for those of you who come from a more liturgical, high church, you know, orderly tradition. Um, you're better than us. No, we we're, we're really want to be a community that is tapping into the various streams. So we know some of you come from uh, more charismatic backgrounds. Some of you come from uh, evangelical backgrounds. Some of you Presbyterian. Some of you haven't been to church in a very long time. Some of you have never walked through the doors of the church. Uh, and so there are all these different streams all these different flavors of when we gather, what does it look like for us to worship, to be engaged uh, in, the, in the sacraments, in, in the mystery of, of the gathered people. Uh, and so for us, we like to um, really step into certain seasons where churches, communities of Jesus all over the world right now are, are, are in a season of Eastertide, sort of like how we do Lent and Advent and we'll do Pentecost. Uh, so we'd like to step into that calendar and really engage. And so this series was, all right, in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus rising from the dead, if, if you were to believe that, what are the implications for us as a community? How do we... Um, take part in, in this, this, this new thing that has birthed. Jesus s- said there's something new happening. He, he described the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, heaven. Some of you have, have inherited some really bad theology. I know I did for a long time, where the idea that heaven just happens after you die. Uh, that is not a biblical idea. Um, the, f- the, the reality is, is, is that eternal life, the life of the ages, the kingdom of God actually begins now, and then it begins to it transitions after we die that we can actually begin to live and body the life of heaven even here now. And this becomes the witness to the world that we would be an, an outpost of, of heaven, that we would be a resurrection people or an Easter people in a Good Friday world has been language that we've been using. Uh, so we've, the last three weeks, if you've been with us, we've been talking about raising life in a culture of death sort of from an internal perspective. So we began with what does it mean to raise life in our, in our own hearts? Where is there just death in us? Uh, the second week, uh, we spoke about then we need to understand the life raiser and where is God raising life and how do we partner with him in that? We don't want to do things on our own strength. And, and so a God who's not opposed to effort um, is just opposed to earning. So, so if we are children of him, we are deeply loved right where we are. What does it mean to them actually pursue the things of God? Uh, and then last week we talked about sloth, which sounds like a really weird transition. Um, but we, we, we talked about how we need to then be positioned rightly in our own daily rhythms. And how apathy and despondency and disconnect, these are some of the greatest sins of our generation. We can be so not positioned. We could even be pursuing the things of God sort of inside the church and still live a very disconnected life from the actual hurt that's around us. So we talked about Jesus' words of blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see things made right, for I will be with them. That we need to be positioned like that, to be life raisers in a culture of death. This morning's prayers around Baltimore. We need to ache for the complexity of that, right? It's a race issue. It's a class issue. It's a poverty issue. And actually, Baltimore, in a, in a very weird way, actually serves to set up a little bit of what I want to talk about. 
Because I, I want to humbly submit to you that amidst the systemic complexity around um, things like Baltimore, around the, the sort of epic um, struggles of our day and aches of our day for justice, I actually think that there is something um, even more foundational than class, poverty, and race um, going on when it, when it comes to this, and hear me, when it comes to how we engage fixing this. I, if you're like me, get tired and exhausted of some of the rhetoric on both sides of the aisle as if there's really only two sides. It gets exhausting, right, to try to sort through, oh, wait, wait, that's the issue and so we should all blank. No, 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 that's the issue and so we should all blank. And I would argue, and this is sort of part of my story of why I became a pastor and why I fell back in love with the church, is that to fix the systems, to fix the big things that we see around us, to engage the hurt and heartache, we need to be people who, who know how to engage our, our neighbor and engage ourselves. That most of the major problems, when you see the solutions that nonprofits and advocacy groups and political persuasions put forth, they can't really talk about personal morals. They can't really talk about relationship and transformation. They just talk about, well, if we just do this, then it will fix it. And I would argue it is going in the wrong direction. So how's that for a really vague setup? So I want to talk about this word this morning. Uh, by the way, the passage that Adam read, we're going to come back to that at the very end. And I have a whole lot of scripture to walk through. But for those of you who may be new with us um, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be phased by this at all. If you're, if you're kind of just new, know that we, every week, we open up the scriptures uh, because we believe they're like the inspired word of God. That, that there's something about these stories and accounts that speak to the truth of who God is. But this morning, instead of diving right into to kind of exploring the scripture, I want to do, um, there's this fancy theological word called exegesis. And what that means basically is you're looking into the text and going, okay, what is here? And I want to make sense of it. I'm going to do something first. Before we get into the Bible, I'm going to exegete the culture a little bit. So I want to look at our world where it is, and I want to pull some observations that I, I think that you'll, for the most part, agree with where we are at. So I want to talk about that first, just a, a setup. We cool? You guys awake this morning? Kind of? Yeah? All right. This first word, next slide, is excarnational. Say this with me, excarnational. Yes, this is actually a word. I heard this word a while back, and I thought this word was, was sort of a Christian made-up word, like missional. Uh, there's a lot of words that if, if you know, like, kind of the church world a little bit when you type them into you know word or whatever pages and it does and it comes up like that's wrong spelling it's because it's not a word for some reason Christians just like to make up words um, this is actually actually a word so you've heard of the incarnation right we talk about this around Christmas all the time you sing this in half the Christmas carols the incarnation is the God Almighty becoming flesh excarnational as you would imagine is the opposite excarnational is like a butcher like pulling meat off the bone. So it's a defleshing. Excarnational is pulling the flesh off. Um, oftentimes, this word throughout history, I learned, was used around burial, um, uh, burial uh, practices and ceremonies. So in ancient cultures, if you're a king or a soldier, a revered person that died in battle in a far-off land, and you want to get the corpse home, Right, there wasn't like, well, let's get it on the plane. We can put it in like a sealed compartment. It won't be too, too, too hard to do. It, that was not a possibility. 
And so what they would do is they would literally cut the flesh from the bone and just bring the bones back to bury. In some cultures, it, it was this kind of almost beautiful picture of sort of sending a person off. A lot of ancient cultures were this term Gnostic. In other words, the, the body didn't really matter as much. And so uh, in some, when, when somebody would die, it was an honor to sort of like, we're going to pull this part out and bury it over there and pull this and throw it over there. Uh, there's a, in, in uh, Scotland, there's a rock edge in the northern part of the island that sticks out. And there's a cave. And they found, archaeologists found when they went back into the cave, they found all these bones that had these like holes in them. Uh, they had like, like these jabs. And, and they're, they're, they're kind of pretty good guess. Uh, was that they would put the bodies out on this shelf, sort of honoring the body, and they would allow the birds to come and deflesh the corpse, uh, and then the bones would be buried. And this is really, really awesome. If you're like eating like a sausage egg McMuffin right now, this really hits the spot. Um, <laughs> excarnational burial, defleshing. So Charles Taylor. Uh, he's a phenomenal author. I highly recommend his book, The Secular Age. He talks about secularization. So he talks about everything kind of pre-enlightenment versus post-enlightenment. And, and he makes this really strong argument that I don't have enough time to get into this morning, but basically the gist of it is, is we used to know things in a physical way. We used to have like muscle memory. Uh, we used to be far more engaged in the world around us in ways that... Um, transcended, I guess you would say, just mentally what we know. So a silly example, a trivial example, this would be like grandma. So my grandma, when she would cook, I very rarely, rarely saw a cookbook. So she would just sort of like, it's the way you want to cook, right? But you're too tied to the cookbook, right? Some of you probably can cook this way. You know, you like reach in, like, and you grab a little bit of pepper. And it's like, you know, half a teaspoon of pepper. So some of us are like, uh, but Nana, she'd be like, Oh, feels no, not maybe not enough. Like she wouldn't even taste it. She would just sort of like dash and be like, mm, no, a little more, and then re-dash. And she would be able to cook like this, right? She would know just when no timer on the oven. She'd be like in the other room. We'd be like praying, playing Scrabble. She'd be like, like just feel it in the air. Like casserole's done, and just like go in. There was like this muscle memory. Do anyone have a nana like that? Yeah, or a grandpa like that who would like cook just so like, yeah all feel. That's how I like to pretend to cook. When I was a kid, my mom used to let me go up to the uh, stove, and so we'd be, um, she would make, meat sauce was the big thing, so she'd just do tomato sauce. We had like four kids, all right, my mom couldn't cook a gourmet meal every time. So pasta, tomato sauce, put some meat in there, and then it was my job, and I would, I would, she would give me like Italian seasoning, right, which is like such a lame, it's like basil, oregano, they like combine it for you. And uh, I don't know why. I always had a problem with, like, Italian seasoning. So I would take the Italian seasoning, and because I couldn't really mess it up, and she would let me. So I would take a little bit out, and I could throw it in, and then I would stir it. So from a very young age, I didn't know how to cook, but I, I know how to make it look good, which is a problem that carried into my adult life. <laughs> it's another sermon. It's like elbow knowledge. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It's like there's this idea, you, you know, just by being close to somebody, you would, you would sort of in, inherit uh, some of the, the physical memory or the connection that they had with the, with the physical thing, elbow knowledge. You would kind of absorb it. Uh, one, one example in craftsmanship, next slide, is a Stradivarius violins. 
You ever heard of the Stradivarius? So the story here is this was like a peasant, very little education, made these violins that, as far as I could tell, and I did my research, to this day, they can't really manufacture them in the same kind of way. Like we're talking machines with unbelievable precision. And the way that he would do it was sort of like my grandma cooking. You know, he'd like, uh, you know, someone would come over, one of his workers, and hand him a piece of wood that was cut, and he would just sort of feel it. I mean, there are so many accounts like this. He'd just be like, no. Nah. And somebody else would come in, and like, what about this, this piece? And he would hold it. No. Nah. And he would just know by feel and by touch as he manufactured. And these are widely assumed, like, as the greatest violins and some of the greatest instruments ever crafted. And the fact that we have a hard time now recreating them shows the sort of peculiarity and the, and the very delicate touch. There was a, uh, somebody who couldn't write down the recipe, someone who didn't need to bother w- with creating a, or couldn't even do it uh, in terms of intellect, like put together, this is the system of how I made these. Uh, there was a sense of touch and a physical memory. Uh, the phrase, again, Charles Taylor used is enfleshed knowledge. And flesh knowledge. So at, at the, um, it, with the sort of renaissance of enlightenment, uh, we shifted our mind, right? The, the, the phrase of the enlightenment is what? I think, therefore I am. And that we have a major hangover that we're still kind of in around the enlightenment. I think, therefore I am. Knowledge becomes king and knowledge becomes external. Right? We live in, a, in an age where if we want to know something, we don't need to recall it. Why? Because we have our phones. Knowledge is out there. All the knowledge we need is out there. We know very few things in our bodies. The, the argument is we know very few things sort of in our relationships. We know things because we externally process them. I think, therefore, I am. An, an example that I would I think is is apropos is the airport lounge. Next slide. Uh, I spent the last week and a half um, basically traveling through train stations and airport lounges, and uh, I noticed that everything is designed what? Like, what, make a few observations about airport lounges. Good. What, what do you experience in an airport lounge? People facing away. So the whole thing's designed so you don't have to engage one another. You don't, like, see, like, a bunch of chairs sitting around a table, do you, ever? What else? It's loud. What is it? Everyone's on a device. Yeah, everyone's sort of looking down. I was at, I didn't, I forgot to snap a picture of it, but the one lounge I went into uh, in LaGuardia, I think it was, and it was um, iPads at every single seat in the whole lounge. I didn't even have to engage with the waitress. It was like, put it in, and it came, and like somebody appeared out of nowhere and disappeared as quick as they came. It's like, shh, you know, it's like comments. I couldn't even comment to the person. There was like a comment section on the iPad. This is not a slam against technology or airports. I just think this is an apropos example of sort of the world we live in. It's luminous space, right? Everybody is in transition in an airport lounge, and it's designed that way. There's an assumption in an airport lounge that what? You're, you're, you're not going to stay there, right? You're only there for half hour, hour, two hours, three hours. If you're flying JetBlue, maybe 10. But, you know, you're just kidding. The assumption is you'll be moving on. Uh, and, and that, in some ways, I, I think speaks not only the isolation, but the sense of how we live life. When I speak to most people, 
and I ask what they do, they say, well, well, this is what I'm doing now, but. Well, what I'm doing now is, like, no one else says that. I feel like that's a very distinctly American or Western thing. Right? What do you mean? You have to, you have to clarify that what you're doing is only what you're doing right now? Like, right now, well, right now I'm pasturing, but or we have this sense of transition. We have this sense of, of we're moving on, of we're transient even as we live our life. There's, we're going to the next thing, and, and, and this reinforced isolation that comes around that. You assume you'll be moving on. No one, this Charles Taylor says this, no one belongs anywhere because anyone belongs everywhere. No one belongs anywhere because anyone belongs everywhere. I think this is true of the airport lounge. I think this is true in some way of, our, of, of where we're at in a Western society. The sense of belonging, of being planted in a space, of being enfleshed, of being connected physically to space and people, I would argue is lost. A friend of mine was telling a story of going to the uh, Chinese restaurant in his neighborhood. And uh, there was this really kind of weird, have you ever had that slight connection, like I've seen you before, but I'm not quite sure, so I'm not going to say anything. And so he's describing this story. He goes up, and he's like, orders some General Tso's chicken. And the guy next to him orders some, some spring rolls. And he looks over at him, and he's like, didn't say anything, kind of looked down, quickly moved on. It was already too much of an interaction with another person. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, and this sounds unbelievable, but <laughs> it's really funny. He, he, he pulls into his, his he lives in like a cul-de-sac, and he pulls into his driveway. And about 15 seconds behind him, pulls in his neighbor, and it's the guy from the Chinese store. And they look at each other and kind of get even more awkward and then walk into their houses. And he said it was a moment that he felt personally not only just convicted and a bit, you know, guilty, uh, but he was sharing this story just going, I feel like this is the struggle right here. So many people on the move all the time and barely enough bandwidth for even their neighbor. I look at the picture like this. Tourism, surface, temporary, right? When we travel, we just want the photo we, we don't want to actually be with people and connect. We just want to go to the place and line up in the long line and take the picture in front of the Eiffel Tower and go. We don't want to know about the complexities of living in the area or what the people are like or what that baker. Again, this isn't for everyone, but I think there's this, or we want to want that, but how we actually live our life in a day-to-day is tourism, is surface, is temporary, is excarnational, is disconnected from the flesh. And so when we think about Baltimore, I would argue that we don't need a rioter or a fire or a, like a CVS ablaze to see the hell in our neighborhood. Like, I think that there's a deeper level of brokenness and disconnection. That that is simply symptomatic of something much bigger that goes on every day in our world. One other, one other way to hit this would be talking about screen addiction. Right? If we've outsourced all our knowledge to Google, then we constantly need to be looking down. Porn is a really perfect analogy. Pornography is, is literally is excarnation perfectly. It's a defleshed sexual experience. It is a sexual experience that's disconnected from an actual physical human being. It's called a perfect metaphor. You could be a 16-year-old virgin and have seen every possible sexual encounter in the world. That's possible now. 
I could see every possible combination of people coming together in lewd forms and not have ever experienced physical touch in that way. It is an excarnating experience. And there are these forces, whether we want to whether we want to believe them or name them or not, that I think pull us outside our bodies. And we need to be concerned with how we are being shaped. We are moving from an other-centric, communal, physical, embodied world, and we are moving out of that in isolation. Adias Huxley, if you've ever read Brave New World, he talks about this, this, this uh, dis- dystopia, this picture of this is how it's going to be at sort of the end of days is his language. And this is, this is like prior to everyone having screens in front of them. So this is like truly kind of prophetic. Not kind of prophetic, actually prophetic. He says, the future, if I were to paint it in a picture, is a man alone in a room in front of a screen. Like this is, is sort of the, 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 the place where he saw things going years and years ago. Mark Sayers talks about this phrase dystopia. So that sometimes we think of like the end, how things will like, everything's going south, the apocalypse, right? I don't think it's going to look as much like, uh, like zombie films or, or, or Mad Max or Blade Runner. I'm trying to hit every ref- cultural reference point there. I actually think, or, or Mark Sayers thinks, that it's actually going to be pastel. It's actually the end, the apocalypse, the brokenness is, is actually going to be this dystopia of disengaged, dislocated world. That, um, when, when, so here's a great example. When, when Americans were polled and asked about what an ideal society would look like, so we want to have a place where we can walk to and bike and this is what the food scene would look like and grocery store. Like we're talking across almost most races this landed in the same place. Do you know what the ideal city then, this one poll put together? The ideal city for most Westerners is Copenhagen. I think I have a picture of Copenhagen up here. Yeah, Copenhagen was the place. Anyone ever read about Copenhagen, been to Copenhagen? Yeah, I watched a documentary on it just so I wasn't completely ignorant. It was, it's amazing. I mean, literally, I thought, wow, the poll got it right. I mean, there's like, there, there's this great picture I found. I didn't put it up there of like, like, everyone comes to a stoplight and everyone's on like a bicycle. It's like hundreds of people in business suits on bicycles. You know, it's like getting smoothie injections and they're going to their like music listening party where they're all going to sip amazing coffee and like get free money from the government. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> that was a, a little bit of a distorted picture I just threw at you, but it was, and yet, Copenhagen, I mean, <laughs> looking at the stats, unbelievable, highest suicide rate in Europe. Unbelievable alcohol issues across the board. It is such a destructive place, but you know where? Right under the surface. It, it actually fits Mark Sayer's image of dystopia. Dystopia, the end will be pastel. It won't be the whole world falling apart. It will actually be just disengaged, disembodied people who are on the surface of things. It will be the airport lounge where there's a darkness and a sickness underlying so much. How can we ask the black and white communities in our culture to reconcile when we can't talk to the people next door? And how, as followers of Jesus, if you're here and you're a Christian, how could we allow ourselves to be swept along in our culture when at the center of our story, the center of how we understand the world to be, 
is something totally different. And so I want to unpack this for a moment as we turn to Scripture and hopefully offer, um, I'm taking you on a little bit of a journey here. You're probably like, what on earth did all that have to do with raising life in a culture of death? I'll tell you. <laughs> Genesis 1, if you have your Bibles. <laughs> in Genesis, this is the beginning of the Christian narrative. This is the story of God's people. And so you get this, um, this affirmation right out of the gates that the way in which God made the world was good. The story doesn't start with sin and brokenness. It starts with this world right here is good. God made it good. And he goes, there's this rhythm. So Genesis 1 and 2 are set up like a poem. It's meant to inform us and tell us about something bigger. This is not a historical account per se. This is telling us, this is something truer than that. This is the state of who we are. It was a story written to slaves in Egypt telling them this is your ancestry. This is who you are. And so you have this rhythm. God made this and it was good. God made this and it was good. God made this and it was good. Through and through and through. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 2.18 and you have a break in the rhythm. Like an actual break in the rhythm of the text if you looked at the original language. The Lord God said it was not good for the man to be alone. It was not good for people to be alone. Loneliness is the first thing in the beginning in the creation narrative that is described as not good. Think about phrases that we love to hear. I'm not going anywhere. I've been there. Like, oh, that's my story too. I know what that's like. Think about the longing that we have for affirmation and connection with the people around us. The primal origins, according to the Judeo-Christian story, is the first thing that God says is it's bad. Loneliness and disconnection is not good. And that's why many have pointed out the two most powerful words in the English language is me too. Me too. When someone joins us in our story, when someone understands whether it's our pain or understands something good and beautiful and puts it into words, this is a primal issue. And as someone joins you in it, many attribute our very survival and our ability to go through life is that someone went through that with us. So let's keep going. I'm going to keep going through a number of scriptures here to help paint a picture. Hebrews 4.15 Hebrews 4, 15. I'm going to read from 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, speaking of Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, we don't have a God, a Savior, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. There's this belief in the Christian story that the God of the universe has endured everything that we have. Early Christian belief believed that God had come alongside us, right in our humanity and our rawness, that God in the flesh, the verse that, jo that Adam read to us in John, that the Lord of the universe has become flesh, has become like a, a child and shown us not just the way of life, 
has shown us what it means to be truly human and that he has endured everything that we have. This is what God is like. A few pages to the right, Hebrews 12, this sort of same image keeps getting uh, lodged out there for, or logged out there for us to think about. Sorry, one second here. Hebrews 12. We see a picture um, of what it means to actually consider him who endured opposition. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and, and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only does God know what it's like to live, but a God who knows what it is to suffer, to be accused, to be stoned, to be rejected. This is how enfleshed the God of the universe became. We know this. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, this is so central it almost feels like you should like tap out and wait till I say something interesting that you didn't know again. But the fact is, is this central thing is why, is why we talk about being gospel-centered. It's why we talk about being focused and always going back to the cross no matter where we are at. Is because this central understanding that the God of the universe knows what it's like actually has ramifications for how we are to actually live and be about our business. John 14, verse 9. John 14, verse 9. Jesus takes this farther. Not only does he suffer, but he says something about his actions, about like who he is and what he's doing. John 14, 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You want to know what God is like? We look at Jesus. This phrase is... This concept that lands on this verse is incarnation, which simply means in the flesh. These first Christians didn't stop there. They go on in 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 1 Corinthians 12.12 to talk about how then we become the body of Christ. This is what I often mention when we do communion, the Eucharist together, is that somehow... As Jesus is like God and God has become in flesh, that we then are to be the body of Christ, the representatives of Christ in the world. That when people look to the church and look to us, that they would get a glimpse, a picture, not just of what heaven is like, but of who the author and maker of heaven is. That we would, they would get a picture of who Jesus is. That you are a body. That you would be acting like Jesus would act. That as you act and speak, you're showing the world what God is like. If people come in here, they get a sense of that because of connection. Because of incarnation. That we are enfleshed. God 
so often in the scriptures shows up dressed as people. The moments that are so profound, like why those moments of me too, of I know what you're going through, of I've been there. This Jewish idea of sitting shiva, which is just like sitting next to someone in their pain, of actually picking up the phone, of going to the house, of, of when celebration is happening, of dancing with and engaging with. Right? It's not the, the, just the happy birthday Instagram post like for your friend. It's actually calling them and taking even five minutes to pour out your love and affirmation and connection and find out how they're actually doing. It's not the disconnected, like, uh, like I love you, or, or happy birthday. <laughs> not I love you. Well, like, happy birthday. And it's, <laughs> I love you. That is really bad. You are really <laughs> excarnated, if that's how you're. By the way, I love you. And then run. God loves to show up dressed as people. These, I think these moments are so profound because they're linked to the cross. Many writers have talked about the cross as God's great me too. The cross is God's great. I know what you're going through. I've endured everything that you have endured. I understand the pain. The cross is Jesus screaming alongside us. There's something when we come alongside each other, when we come alongside our neighbors, when we actually become flesh, we become in the flesh to the people around us, that we show a world that is more disconnected than ever, I would submit to you, what it means to be human, what it truly means to follow the human one, the son of God, to embody this brilliance of divinity and humanity mashed together. You have the potential to show the world what God is like. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and then he gives us the Spirit. You've seen me, God, in flesh. Now go mimic, and I will send my Spirit to guide you and empower you. Incarnation happens when we click into this. Incarnation happens when we realize that there are forces bigger than ourselves, right? How many of you this morning when you woke up, you went to your phone? This is not an anti-technology tirade, but how many of you did that? Two of our leaders um, were practicing, like for the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes of their awake time, that they put their phones away. They just talked to me about how unbelievably difficult that was. And I'm like, five years ago, 10 years ago, that would not have been difficult for any of us. We realize that we get swept up without knowing it into a way of living that is disconnected. Where I'm laying in bed last night and Corey leans over and she goes, you do realize um, we're both on our phones right now, right? And I and I'm, have this sermon like kicking around in the back of my head. I'm like, yep. <laughs> and, and I can immediately justify, well, I had to send a quick email out and she was checking something, somebody's picture she had. And it's like, the problem is, is that that movement, that possibility then creates things that are bigger than ourselves where I'm even laying in the bed with my own wife and there is a, a disconnection that immediately starts to form. We begin to realize as followers of Jesus that every moment is loaded with incarnational possibility. That every car ride, that every trip to the restaurant, at every slow walk through our neighborhood, through the availability and attentiveness to our neighbors, right? We're drawn to disconnection and screens and excarnation. Why? Because it's easier. 
It's like sloth. It's an easier way to live. It's just a crappier one. It's an easier way to live. It's just more death-like. It totally makes sense. I get it. I'm in it. But, But it's actually a worst way to live. And as followers of Jesus, to trust that, that to be people, when we talk about raising life in a culture of death, that we are incarnational in all that we do, in all that we do. How could we allow ourselves to be swept along in this culture of excarnation when at the center of the Christian story is something else, God incarnate, suffering for the sins of the world? Can you imagine Jesus driving into his garage and shutting the door and not knowing his neighbors? Are we people hosting the best parties in our neighborhood? Are we partnering with the people who are doing beautiful work? And are we aware and attentive to what's happening just next door? Even some of us who know that, yeah, I'll be moving on after college or you're not sure how long you'll be in this city. Are we actually present now? And for some of us, it wasn't the plan to end up in, in Providence. It wasn't the plan to end up in this neighborhood. But you're here. And so don't, don't say, I, I, yeah, well, I'm just doing this now. Yeah, that's all you have and you're not promised tomorrow. So stop living in the future and be here now. Are you people who are aware and attentive to the incarnational possibility around us all the time? To go back and close on our airport metaphor, if this is truly an accurate metaphor for so much of where our culture is, um, next slide. There's this airport in Honolulu. And there are four gardens, three, three or four gardens, actually, I can't remember now. Uh, I know there's one Chinese, one Japanese, and one Korean for sure. And they're employed by the airport. And these gardens are open air, as you can see, and they're in the middle. So the Honolulu airport is like any other airport, right? It's the same kind of like excarnational reality that we are describing. Yet, there's these spaces that are open air where there's water and bugs and earthworms and smells And there's somebody out there in the open air like tending to the garden. It is a perfect metaphor for living in our age. Some people just walk right by in a rush to the next thing and they don't look in on the garden. They don't look in. And they're there, these gardens, because they're there to show us actually that's life. That's to be in the flesh. That's to be physical and connected and hands and the dirt and smell and awake and aware of what's actually behind you. And some people look in on the garden. Some people actually take the time to go down and walk the path through it. And some just keep walking and don't look. If people analyzed your life, what would they learn about heaven? What would they learn about the way of Jesus? What do we have to offer people in this beautiful pastel Copenhagen apocalypse? What do we have to offer people in a disconnected world? What do we have to offer people in a place that people aren't grounded? They aren't committed to space and place. What would our leaving, our not knowing our neighbor, our not being connected, our not being in flesh, what would that tell people about the nature of God? God has revealed himself, Michael Frost writes this, God has revealed himself most sublimely 
through exactly these things, and he invites us to live a rich physical communal life in relation to the neighborhood in which we reside and the earth upon which we live. And leaders should model this vision. We should know our neighbors' names. We should shop at our local stores and know where our food comes from. We should befriend the outsider and take the strangers into our home. We should practice hospitality, generosity, generosity, neighbor, 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 neighboring, and placemaking. Look, social media, the internet, these, these, these work cycles, our regular habits, these are tools and they can totally contribute to this end. But ultimately they can't achieve the goal of incarnation alone. And in fact their collective force is often too strong for us. We need to be people who literally love the hell out of our neighborhoods. nailed it (laughs) and that's what it means to raise life in a culture of death that's one way I promised you I would have got to practical things at the end of this series I'll talk about one more next week but when we talk about raising life in a culture of death if there's any truth to anything I just shared about this is the reality of our disconnected place what sorts of things and rhythms what sorts of things are pinging right now I don't know my neighbor If people looked in at my life, they would see the exact same life that everybody else leaves a disconnection. We as a church can continue to grow and be this temple, to be the body of Christ, to be the body of the enfleshed one in our world, to be incarnation. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I I ask um, I ask, Lord, that, that, that we would be uh, people crying out um, for the things of, of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. The world would know Because we, first and foremost, here in our community, would be attentive and aware. People who are are the hands of peace to one another. Who are are connecting. Who are awake, alert, aware. To not just the brokenness around us, but the joy and goodness of creation. I pray, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, as we come to partake of the Eucharist, that our, the prayers on our lips as we walk forward, as we take the bread representative of your body broken and we dip it in the wine, a represent, representation of your blood poured out, that our prayer would be, Lord, help me be in the flesh to fill in the blank. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a particular issue that's been on your heart and you stayed at a distance from it. Maybe it's just joining like a, a one of these groups in our church just to be around other followers of Jesus, you know, every other week and getting together and 
breaking bread and just being present. Maybe that's just the first step for some of us. Maybe for some of us, it's thinking about these bigger issues in a, in a better way. How? How do we have a conversation in Baltimore when we don't know how to talk to our neighbor? How do we have a conversation around race and poverty and class when we're battling sound bites and aligning with sides? When we're more interested in being right than understanding the other? When we want to reduce things to simple answers when they never are? Lord, help us as a church raise life in our city. In your name, we come to the table and pray, amen. Come up the center aisle as you feel led. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, take the bread and dip it in the wine, dip it in the juice as a reminder of Christ's body broken and his blood poured out this ultimate act of love and forgiveness, a God who meets us literally where we're at, who incarnates and shows us the way of Jesus and shows us the way of forgiveness, that we can be a people that engage these questions from a place of love. So would you come?